just tuned in to this episode of Pacey Performance Bite Size. So this clip comes from John Waggle from episode number 361 of the Pacey Performance Podcast and discusses the benefits of eccentric training, links dynamic performance, any downsides to eccentric training, and then progressions and where to start. But just before we do get going, this episode is sponsored by Rock Daisy. So if you're looking for somewhere to collect, analyze, and report data, whether it be RPEs, wellness data with your athletes, look no further than AMS Lite from Rock Daisy, the world's only free AMS. And you can find out more at rockdaisy.com. So let's dive straight in. You mentioned AEL. I won't, I won't leave it for 45 minutes to ask you what that actually stands for, like I did on the Mastermind, which I was, um, I should have done a lot sooner. But firstly, benefits of eccentric training. And I know that's a big question, and I'm probably guilty of doing it again, like I did on the Mastermind, and, and bunching eccentric training altogether, when, as Mike Young said on, on, that, on, that, um, on that Mastermind, that this is a spectrum, so it, yep. is a, it is a big area. So apologies for chucking this at you, but benefits of eccentric training for the listeners out there. Yeah, so you know, and we'll get to the kind of the differentiation later. Uh, I assume on you know tempo versus flywheel versus AEL and plyos and whatever else you want to put into that bucket. But um, you know, really the the benefits of eccentric training to me, it really just comes down to that the force producing isn't constrained by lengthening velocity. That's that's a really critical piece there because we can produce really high forces at really high speeds, which happens to occur quite often. Uh, in sport and and so logically then even if we um, kind of bring the neuromuscular side into it we're able to produce a lot more force per motor unit recruited Uh, all of that um, kind of just pairs pretty well with how we need to adequately prepare athletes uh, for the demands of sport and I think a lot of the benefits to eccentric training we want to kind of zoom in on those mechanistic things but a lot of the um, the tangible benefits of this training or programming decision really um, are with longer term application. So that's where we see some really interesting things happen um, in terms of fast fiber cross sectional area changes, more explosive performance. We have you know longer fascicles and more sarcomeres in series, stronger anabolic signals, stiffer muscle tendon units. You know all kinds of benefits to a variety of athletic you know endeavors and so um, when we start to look at the longer term application of eccentric training and how we can mix that into program design that's to me where the benefits really start to show themselves do you think it's because of the work of yourself and, and others that has brought about a bit of a resurgence in the interest in eccentric training as of as of recently um you know i, I seems think to have been yeah, I do think it's it's gaining it's been gaining popularity for you know a number of years, and and I think the um, you know really commercialization of flywheel has been a big a big part of that. Um, and there's a ton of researchers that have done brilliant work um, in this space. That you know uh, you know Dr. Dr. Hoff, Jamie Douglas. Um, Melissa Harden, yeah, I'm going to miss a lot of names, but th- there were a ton of people that just kind of happened to enter this space all at the same time. And so um, I, I do think that having some new information available uh, has definitely generated some interest in the SNC community. So you've mentioned a couple of things there around fiber type and, and whatnot, but direct links to athletic uh, dynamic performance what kind of things 
what kind of benefits are we going to gain from again bucketing all this stuff into the eccentric training area what kind of benefits are we going to get yeah uh so on the shortening velocity side that's where the the sarcomeres and series come into play um but on the injury risk side we're getting longer fascicles as well which you know even something as simple as the nordic leg curl uh, very well supported, especially when you do add eccentric overload um, to the Nordic leg curl. It really seems to have an influence on muscle architecture. Um, there does seem to be a preferential hypertrophy to fast fibers, which can help us in a couple of ways. Like obviously, you know, we're going to have bigger, more forceful fast twitch fibers as a result there. But there's also a potential that, um, or or a theoretical uh, situation there where we have less drag from the slow twitch fibers just because those fast twitch ones are now making up a, a larger uh, relative proportion of the whole muscle cross-sectional area. Um, and then as mentioned before, like you, you do have a stiffer muscle tendon unit, which is going to lend itself very well to, to dynamic performance improvements too. So that kind of collection of things, uh, you know, tends to be what I would point to the most for linking to dynamic performance. But as I mentioned earlier too, as you continue to zoom out on this, um, there's stronger anabolic signaling with eccentric training. You have more satellite cell activation. Um, that, that, in theory, is going to get you some more muscle size changes, though, as I mentioned, that's more at the fiber-specific level rather than whole muscle. Um, and then you've got more voluntary agonist activation, downregulation of any kind of inhibitory response from the nervous system. You've got all kinds of things going on that um, are going to be important for athletes. And that's not to paint it with a broad brush either and say like, oh, well, because of that list, I should, I should only uh, focus on, on eccentric training. It is a, a piece of the puzzle there. Um, but I do think a, an underappreciated uh, programming variable, especially with its versatility. So tell me this, why, based on all those benefits why would not say people are but why would people not take this on board and implement some of it into their training program what are the what are the downsides it seems like there's lots of upsides yeah I, I mean some of it is certainly on the athlete safety side uh we see super maximal eccentric loading and um that gets bucketed as you mentioned before that kind of all gets bucketed into eccentric training although eccentric training does not necessarily have to be super maximal but i do think there's still a little bit of a stigma that this is a very stressful stimulus and it is like even in the in the submaximal versions of it like there there's certainly um some physiological stress associated with this that doesn't necessarily appear with other training methods but um you know, I think there is a way to program it in, but I do think when people, especially are dealing with team sports and there's a thousand different factors and all that complexity there, that there's just some apprehension uh, to, to fit this in just because uh, of the potential implications for recovery status. Mm -hmm. And that's, I guess that's a big one. The recovery status is the, I suppose, the key, especially with the sure. Nordic. Obviously, we've, we've been through that debate a million times, as sure as yeah. everyone else has as well. But even so, not looking at the Nordic, that's a big, a big flag for for anyone. Yeah, and, and people point very readily to the repeated bout effect, and and that's certainly you know something that we need to consider. But um, you know, with the progression, the variation, those other you know aspects that we're considering there, like you're still going to be disruptive to the. 
to the recovery status of the athlete if you're if you are progressing and providing adequate variation regardless of uh, what you're doing with the eccentric training side and so it it never goes away the the repeated bout effect doesn't absolve us from considering uh you know the the stress induced from from eccentric training so you mentioned that the progression i think that'd be a really nice place to go next this this little, little part of the conversation so for anyone listening who hasn't introduced eccentric focused training before where would you start and what's the logical i know this is a, again super wide brush stroke with with yeah. getting it getting everything in there but what would you recommend for people to progress from start to to end not there is an end but end yeah um the the kind of level zero for me uh would be the the tempo or movement cadence manipulation with eccentric training. Um, there, there's actually not a ton of support <laughs> for it, um, especially when it comes to like strength power adaptations, which is pretty logical. If, you know, if I slow the eccentric phase down, I'm going to, I'm not going to be able to use as much weight and that intensity downshift really has implications for strength power changes. And there's, there's certainly been some studies that have demonstrated muscle size changes, but uh, I, my interpretation of literature and, and certainly others have, have different interpretations, but I have yet to be convinced that, uh, slowing down the eccentric phase, for example, is superior than just regular old resistance training without a, a targeted approach to movement cadence. But that being said, I, I do think that there's a lot to be gained. Um, and this is really regardless of who you're working with. I think there's a time and a place each year. Uh, within an annual plan to revisit technique and to make sure that those things are really, really sound uh, and that they are exactly how you want them as a coach. And that's both for athlete safety, but to make sure you're stressing tissues in the way that you intend. Uh, and, and that's really where technique's important for me uh, outside of the athlete safety piece. So I think that's kind of your level zero, but um, I like flywheel as, as the next logical progression there. Um, there's there's a little bit of a, a elongation, I'll call it, between the eccentric and concentric phase when you have to overcome that inertia at the bottom of, let's just say, a squat that I think can, can give people time to produce a lot of force, um, but they're not necessarily ready to produce that force rapidly. And so the flywheel kind of lends itself well next, plus there's a little bit more support on the hypertrophy side, um, and especially for lesser trained athletes, like you'll see some strength, power, speed, change of direction changes as well. Um, that, that's pretty well supported. Um, and so to me, that, that's the next logical step. And then you get into things like AEL and some of that versatility. You, you might progress within that with submaximal to supermaximal and, and things of that nature. But AEL then because of the um, higher eccentric rate of force development, most notably, that lends itself really well to then progress to plyometrics and, and really top speed sprinting and those things, which to me are, are kind of the tail end of what you'd uh, want to expose that athlete to in terms of uh, the highest level of, of eccentric stress. So um, whether you want to bucket plyometrics into eccentric training is kind of up to your interpretation. Um, but to me, that's kind of the end of the road and AEL does a good job to set you up uh, for some of those more advanced plyometrics. But all that being said, I think it's important, too, that it's more about the blend 
of these methods that you're not necessarily going to do one in isolation, that there, there's going to be kind of elements of each, uh, no matter what stage of training that you're in. And that's, that's important um, to be able to set you up for success in progression. So that's another important piece to consider. Just going back right to the start of that, that continuum with the with tempo. Mm-hmm. So based on what you said around the, the evidence, where does the hype come from in, in that area? Because anyone, not to dumb it down to, to my level here, but anyone that goes to the gym for the first time or speaks to someone at the gym and and wants to get put on some put on some size, that seems to be, I mean, this is the potential bro science, but where does that hype come from? Because it, it's... Hundred percent would make its will make its way into professional sport because it inevitably does. Um, whether players speak to people themselves or read something somewhere, so where's that actually come from? Um, I think some of it uh, certainly comes from the uh, resistance training status of most athletes. That it's not as far along as as maybe some of us would like to admit, and so there's nothing wrong with starting at that level zero or, or getting that that technique really dialed in. Especially some sports uh, lend themselves to a lot of movement restrictions just by nature of playing. You know, in my time in basketball, uh, you know, teaching those guys to squat uh, was a multiple week endeavor, and, and so tempo training was a really good tool for me. Uh, with that population. And so I, I do think that that's, that's some of it. Um, I also think that there's, uh, and this is maybe not a, a very popular opinion, uh, and, and it's not being critical of anyone in particular, but I, I do think there's an element of uh, managing the perception of a good strength conditioning session, that if you slow things down and everything looks really clean, and uh, you know, an administrator or a, a front office member or you know, a head coach or whoever would were to walk by, um, even if you do not have any domain specific knowledge of strength conditioning, you would walk by and say, wow, like that is a, that is a really clean looking session. Um, and so it lends itself really well for those, those internal perceptions, but obviously it lends itself very well for, for external perception as well. If, if that were to exist on, on social media or anything like that, like that, that, um, that paints the session in a very positive light. Um, and I have nothing, not opposed to that at all. Um, I just would also advocate for it being supported from a like training stimulus side um, and not just primarily emphasized on those things. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Pacey Performance Bite Size. So John's episode in full can be found on iTunes, Spotify and YouTube and it is episode number 361. Big thanks to Rock Daisy for sponsoring this episode today and I look forward to speaking to you soon.